Good morning, Peninsula. Good to see you this morning. He is risen. Amen. Thanks, guys. I didn't, they didn't let me do this before surgery. They certainly won't let me do it after, so. Oh, well. I do have some good news today, besides the resurrection. I mean, that's the best news today. Our, our, our Afghan refugee family, who we've been supporting, they got in the mail their actual green cards yesterday. So praise the Lord. So that's a good news. We now have experienced immigration lawyers in the church. They can handle it. So congratulations to the team. Well done. It's a good day. If you have been on this journey to Resurrection Sunday with us, we have been looking back at some Polaroid photos that taught us something about the cross as we kind of dug through the old family album. These snapshots, we saw a snake, a bronze snake, hanging up on a pole so that if Israel would just look at the snake after they got bit, they'd be healed. They just had to believe. Then we looked at a Polaroid of, of, of Abraham as he's got his knife drawn, ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. And there off to the side, there's a ram caught in a thicket. You see, there was a substitute. He didn't have to complete that sacrifice of Isaac. We just got to believe in our substitute. Last Sunday, we looked at the offspring of Eve, how he would suffer pain in his heel, and it looked like it was going to be life-threatening, but it, 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 he was going to crush Satan's head. Just believe that we, God had this thing taken care of. And the pain which seemed fatal for Christ in the bigger story was really just a bruised heel. This morning, we're going to explore Matthew 28. We're going to look at Matthew's events and how he describes, um, I'm, I'm okay, as he describes um, uh, his account of the resurrection. And I want to highlight, I want us to come up with one word, it kinda, I'm stuck on this one word that changes everything. And so we're going to look at the context of Matthew, then we're going to actually look back at a couple more uh, Polaroid photos. And then see if I can convince you that this word is all as important as I think it is. I might be crazy. It's happened before. But we'll see. So, the context of Matthew. Let's look. Against the backdrop of what has been happening in Matthew 26, 27, 28. What's going on? In the last hours of Jesus Christ, what happened? The disciples had bailed on him. They'd left him. They had fled into the darkness after the arrest at Gethsemane, and they're gone. Some of them kind of follow along. Peter follows, but Peter denies Jesus. I don't even know you. Three times, and then he's gone. It's not like Jesus was going through some minor inconvenience either, right? Jesus was being executed by the state Professional executioners stripped him in front of everybody. They flogged him, which means they whipped him, they, they beat him, they humiliated him in front of everybody. And through all of those events, where are the disciples? Well, they're nowhere to be found. They've scattered, they've left. At the cross, fortunately, there's some women who are following, they're still around. And it appears John is there, but kind of incognito. And a huge theme of the ending of the book of Matthew 
is that the closer Jesus gets to the cross, the more people have abandoned him. Until as he hangs on the cross, he cries out, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he dies alone. So let's pick up the story in Matthew. That's a cheery story. Let's pick it up in Matthew 28, verse 1. Matthew writes, after the Sabbath, so he dies on Friday. There's the Sabbath day where they're resting. And then on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking to Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus meets them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. So on this first day of the week, after Jesus has risen from the dead, you would think, what are we expecting to have happen? What needs to happen at that point? At some moment in this relationship between Jesus and his disciples, there needs to be some kind of reckoning. There needs to be some kind of comeuppance, right? I mean, when Jesus talks about them, when he, when he sees them for the first time, you expect Jesus to kind of stand back and say what? Well, well, well. What's been going on, guys? Where have you been? Do you have something to say about your courage maybe in the last couple of days? Can you tell me something about your decision-making skills? or lack thereof. You guys got any apologies for me? I you know, did this all alone because I recently just got executed by professional executioners. Maybe you should leave with a simple, well, I'm sorry we weren't there for you. That's what you'd expect to find in the text because I think metaphorically some blood's gotta be spilled here in the water. You gotta do something to restore the relationships and make the kingdom right. But what do you get from Jesus? You don't get that at all. Now, I understand this chapter is important for other reasons. I mean, the death of Christ and his resurrection, I mean, he conquers death. The divide between infinite God and finite man finally gets bridged in this chapter. And all the things that Matthew's talked about, the kingdom and the Beatitudes, all that it's coming to a head and the destiny of where this is headed is, is insignificant. And all that stuff is important and clarified, and I get it, and that's a big deal. But I also think it's a pretty big deal that Jesus, with one word, changes everything. The entire dynamic of his relationship with his disciples, and I would say with us. In one word, he makes it all right. Matthew 28, verse 10 then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. He's still talking to the women. Go and tell my brothers 
to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Did you catch the word? What does he call them? First, the angel had, ca had called them, you know, disciples. Tell the disciples, here's the message. Now there's a message straight from Jesus, and he says what? Brothers. Brothers. Those people who bailed on him, it's almost like this doesn't need any sorting out. It's like there's nothing that needs to be said. It's simply like Jesus is saying, okay, it's time to get on with it. When the angel shows up and tells the women who are at the tomb who are faithful and there the whole time, you know, they show up, they see this bright, shiny angel, and, and the angel says, now go and give this message to the disciples. You do what a bright, shiny angel would tell you to do too. So they do it. But here's what I think we need to do and understand. When Jesus gives the message from himself, they're walking down this road, they see him, and he says, tell my brothers, not my followers, not my disciples, my brothers, they're going to see me. But I'm thinking that's not how things usually work. There is such a thing as relational equity. You've got to make this relationship right. There are things such as relational debts. You don't just jump right to brothers. And if I'm a disciple, I'm like preparing for that moment on Saturday. I mean, he did mention he's going to rise again. It's a little confusing. I'm not sure where this is headed. But you know, what if he does? And I'm thinking in my little hovel or wherever I am out in the wilderness, I better be ready for that moment. I better get my speech ready to go. Because if I see him again, i got to make this right. I mean... What if he really does raise from the dead? So on Saturday, I work on that as I'm hiding out from the authorities. Something like, okay, Jesus, you are the best. I, I, really, I really blew it in, in, in not sticking with you. I understand that I left you out to, to, to dry, and I just left you hanging there. And I can't imagine what you've been through. Is there anything I can do to make that up for you? Because I really want you to know I am loyal. You do matter. This kingdom matters. We've all been in those kinds of relationships where we have so, so discord in that relationship or we have so messed it up that we've had to think of that speech. What is that like? We have all know what that feeling is like. And so I got to thinking, well, what would a first century reader, as they're reading this text and they see that word, what are they thinking of? And I think there's two Polaroids that they're thinking back on. The first Polaroid is this. You got to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, to an incident between a couple of brothers who were related to Abraham. They were actually Abraham's grandsons. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had twins, Esau and Jacob. Now, growing up in Abraham's family, I'm not sure you would consider it a normal upbringing. These people have got a weird family, and they came up with weird ways to have children. I mean, you know, Hagar, this is kind of a mess. Can you imagine Thanksgiving at Abraham's house? Really? That could be awkward. But in all of that weirdness, you get to a place where two estranged brothers 
are on a collision course in Genesis 33. Esau is the oldest of the twins. Jacob is the youngest. By rights, Esau gets all the inheritance, the blessing. he's, He's the big cheese of the family. But Jacob's a hustler. He's a sneaky guy. And he's always coming up with ideas and schemes how to outmaneuver his older brother. And so at the end of Isaac's life, he goes in and he pretends to be Isaac and he steals the birthright. He steals the inheritance. How does Esau react? Well, it's very clear. Genesis 27, 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Dad's about to die. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. He was not happy. I'm going to wait for, his, for dad to die so he doesn't have to see that, and then I'm going to get my revenge. So what does Jacob do? Jacob decides it's time to get out of Dodge. I, I, I don't want to face that. So he runs. He runs as far away as he can, a long way away to another land. And he's gone for 14 years plus travel time, a really long time. 14 years he had to sit around and stew on that one incident between his brother. Esau had the same 14 years to sit around and stew about his relationship with Jacob. And while Jacob's there, what happens? He's gone in this other land and he wants to marry this girl, but the girl's dad, Laban, says, "Ah, I'm going to, you know, he tricks him. You got to wait, work seven years and then you can marry her. So he does, he gives him the wrong woman, and then he's got to work another seven years. Jacob's ticked. Jacob decides to get his revenge on Laban, and then Laban's not happy. So now what does Jacob do? Where is he going to go? He's got to escape from Laban. The only place he has to go is home. But that's a, that whole Jacob thing is a story for another day. So Jacob has to get out of Dodge again, and so he's a man without a country, and so he heads home. A long and dangerous journey across the desert because he knows when he gets back home he's going to see Esau what is that moment going to be like so what does he do all the way home he writes his speech what are you gonna say I did a vile thing to you bro if there's any way I could be reconciled with you just tell me and then this happens when they meet. Genesis 33, verse 1. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau. <sighs> Coming with his 400 men. Oh, man, this is going to be painful. So what does he do? Oh, gee. He divides the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he puts the female servants and their kids in the front. They're the least valuable. And then Leah and her children next, and then Rachel, the favorite one, and Joseph in the back. Hopefully Joseph or Esau won't punish him and his family, but you know, I got some, some little security for them in the back. Verse 3, he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. What does he do? He humiliates himself in front of his whole family. I don't think they'd ever seen Jacob bow down on the ground like that in front of anybody. I'm so sorry. Esau, I'm so sorry. Seven times. And all the people who look up to him as the head of his house, they're watching this. And, and you have to understand he's more like a mayor or a, or a, you know, it's kind of a moving city at this point. He's a chieftain or a warlord, whatever you want to call him. And they're watching him prostrate himself in the dirt. 
they got to be thinking, whoa, we've never seen anything like that from Jacob before. So he's giving up social equity in front of his own people. He's humiliating himself. And what happens? Verse 4, but Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Well, who are these people? Jacob said, They're my, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Like, that's my family, bro. Jacob doesn't say it, but the paraphrase of these verses has to go something like this. It's been so long, and it's such a relief to finally introduce you to my family, and I understand the reason we haven't been together is because of me and the decisions I've made. And Can you understand from Jacob's point of view what that hug meant from Esau? That motif is not uncommon in the Scriptures. Polaroid number two, very familiar story to us. It's in the New Testament. It's a story that Jesus told in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. It's a parable or a story about a kid who inappropriately, like Jacob, gets his hand on the inheritance. And then he wants to just go spend it and live as he wants to, but he finally runs out of money and then he's like living in dirt poverty and says, you know, my dad's servants are living better than I am. I better go home. And what does he do? Begins to go home. And as he's on his way, what does he do? He works on his speech. Luke 15, 18. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He's got his thing worked out here. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And as he heads home, he's figuring out what to say to dad. And he's got this speech really down pat. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, though, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Dad sees him coming a long way off, and what does dad do? Dad does something humiliating in that culture. He pulls up the robes of his skirt, and he heads down, running down the road to meet him. He says, I'm not waiting for him to walk all the way to me. I want, I want the first thing he sees from the second we make eye contact, I want him to know he's in. And so the dad embarrasses himself and runs down the road in front of the family compound all the way to his son. He embraces him like who? Esau did to Jacob. Even though Jacob didn't deserve it, and even though this kid didn't deserve it. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he didn't even get to finish his planned speech. He worked so hard on it. Dad's like, shut up. Stop talking. You're my son. And he turns around to his servants. He says, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. It's time to celebrate. And by the way, he doesn't have on, you know, the good clothes. Go get him the right clothes to wear as my son. And where's his ring? He doesn't have the ring that says he belongs to me. Get the ring, put it on his finger. Verse 24, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. We like that, but we have to be honest. That is a very strange reaction to someone who's blown up a relationship. So when we get back to Matthew 28, 
We, have situa- we find a situation which I think is of equal offense. These disciples have blown up their relationship with Jesus. Jacob ruined his with Esau. The son ruined his with his father. And don't miss it. They've ruined theirs with Jesus. They left. They deserted him. In his moment of greatest need, they left him all alone. The story that Matthew tells in the last chapters of his book is a story of a major offense. Praise God, there were women. But as we go back to Matthew, the disciples who've abandoned him, even Matthew himself, the offense was so great that you need, I expect, an airing of grievances. I expect some justice to be, to be meted out. I expect there to be some come to Jesus moment. But it's not there. What is there? Esau's embrace. The prodigal father running down the road, wrapping his arms around his son. Jesus saying, brothers. When he says brothers, I think he's saying, we're moving forward from this. We're still in this together. The kingdom's still good. We're still a family of faith. Because what you get in Matthew 28, 10, I think, is the first payoff theologically of what just happened at the cross and the resurrection. What do I mean? Well, why doesn't there have to be this great relational cleansing? Because the debt's just been paid. It's there. It's best been done. And the disciples had, who had inflicted this pain against God, that That has been paid for on the cross. The debt is resolved, just like Jesus said it would be. And what he does by calling them brothers, he's not just being the bigger man in this situation. What's happening here is really the completion of the story of Jacob and Esau. It's the completion of the story that he tells in Luke 15. Except now, the reconciliation is real. It's whole. The reconciliation has been paid for. The offenses are as far as the east is from the west. And I think when Jesus uses this little word brother right here, it's easy to just pass over it and overlook it. But it demonstrates that we are now in a very different place in our relationship with Jesus than we were before the death and resurrection. And it's a beautiful place. Because it's at the point of the resurrection that we now can have a brand new beginning. And you know what? We have that same promise of a new beginning with God. The old things have passed away. All things are new. Brothers, sisters. And what I hope you hear this morning What I hope you see as you walk on the patio, as you eat your donuts, no calories in donuts on Easter, by the way. What I hope you experience this morning is the love of God. Do we need to settle relational accounts? Of course we do. But we need to know that we have a God who will run to us. He will take a step, a thousand steps in our direction If we'll just look 
But you see, God is the father of Luke 15. He runs with any step you take toward him. This morning, I hope you hear that it is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have full reconciliation with God because it was all accomplished by God. Reconciliation is paid for. It's accomplished. And when Jesus calls them brothers, he tells us, just look at that snake up on the pole. Believe. Look at Jesus on the cross. <clears throat> look at the ram caught in the thicket and believe he's your substitute. Look at the cross and the resurrection. Satan has been crushed. This whole world system has been devastated. And he says to us, maybe we just need to believe. You've walked away. Maybe you have abandoned Jesus, just like the disciples, for way too long in your life. And as this world walks away from God, maybe runs away from God, Jesus says, will you walk toward me? It's a countercultural move. Will you be among those whom Jesus would call brothers or sisters? Because no matter what your past, no matter what your present, he would love to call you brother. And this morning I say that Jesus wants a fresh start with you too, just as he wanted one with the disciples, his brothers. As he rebooted that relationship in a word, he will, rebute, he will reboot a relationship with you, too. You don't have to wallow in your guilt. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can have a fresh start in your walk with Christ. If you've ever had a Jacob-Esau relationship with God, or no relationship at all, that can all change this morning. Believe that Jesus will keep his promise. And because of what he's done, he can call you brother. I want to pray for us all this morning. And then I'm going to give you a chance. You don't have to do it. I'm not going to, nothing weird going on. You don't have to raise a hand. You don't have to do anything. But what is God calling to your heart today? If you've, ne you've just been neglecting him, or there's massive things for which you need forgiveness. Today, you can pray with me and find hope and peace in Christ. So I'm gonna pray for you, and then a few minutes, as soon as I do that, I'm gonna pray a prayer. You can recite it in your own heart. Don't say it out loud, just if it expresses your, your, your thoughts and where you are today, just join with me. Let me pray for you first. Father, I know for all of us, we go astray. But there are people here who have abandoned you. There are people here who have know about you, but they've never really known you. And I hope today they have heard of the depth of your love and the difference that the death and resurrection of Christ can make in our lives. So I pray that you would give us and give them the courage to make the wisest decision 
they'll ever make and to open their heart to you. So now you pray if you want to in your own heart. You repeat after me, Lord Jesus, I, I just do confess that I am a sinner and I've walked away from you. I know I can't hide from you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for being my ram caught in the thicket, my substitute on, hanging on the pole, for paying the penalty for my sin, that today I can begin anew. I believe that because of what you did in dying and rising again, you can keep your promise to give to me eternal life. And so today I trust you completely for my salvation. Be my savior. Call me brother, call me sister. In Jesus' name, amen. Every Easter, if you've been here before, we take a little survey. Let's take the health of what's going on in our lives. You'll find on your connect, there is an A, B, C, and D, of which there is no explanation until right now. If you prayed that prayer years ago, you're walking with God, you loved it, you've been a brother, you've been a sister for years, just check box A. You're already a believer. If you'd say, Jim, I prayed that with you to the best of my ability, I don't quite understand everything, but, but I did do that and I'm believing today, then you can check box B. If you're thinking about it, if you agree with me that the sermon was way too short and you haven't had enough time to really think about it, you can check box C. I'm just considering, what does it mean to walk with Christ? If you're really honest, you came only for the donor holes, which are quite delicious, by the way. But you don't really ever intend to make a decision and all this God stuff, you're here just for somebody else. Check box D, be brave, be bold, do it, it's okay. And what I'd ask you to do, if you check box B or box C, take your, take your connect out. Uh, there's a, a sign that says journey class. Tim Meyer will be there afterwards. You can take that there. He'd love to, to chat with you. You can get you a packet of information about what it means to walk with Christ. If you're in a hurry, you can grab a donut hole and just stick it in these black boxes. We don't, you know, post-COVID, we don't pass the offering plate anymore. And so you can just put those connects in those black boxes right by the door. There's one out on the patio. We'll send you a packet. We'd love to, to chat with you. There's no pressure whatsoever to do anything. We love you and we appreciate you joining us this morning to celebrate the resurrection. You had a lot of places you could go to this morning. My Instagram feed tells me that. They're advertising all over the place. But we appreciate you coming here. And we want you to know that this is a place where we love God and we want to speak the truth to you. That you can discover here what it means to have God call you brother or sister and be surrounded by the warmth of people who love God as well. Now, the service, usually, you know, I'm done and we're done. We got about 15 minutes more to go, so just relax. Because we wanna give you some time just to think and to worship. And we're gonna sing a song that, that kinda tells the story of the New Testament, all in one song. And then we're gonna worship our God together. But the song begins with kind of what the sermon's all about. In the darkness we were waiting, without hope and without light, until from heaven you came running. 
and there was mercy in your eyes. He ran down the dusty road, brothers. Father, we thank you today for the hope of the resurrection and for what that teaches us and what this one word reminds us about the grace of God and the depth of his love for us. This week, as we face trials and difficulties, may we not forget that you've called us brother if we believe. Let us walk in the light and the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.